right, well, welcome, Vine fam. I'm so thankful we get to be here today. Go fist bump somebody. Let them know. Don't be hitting them hard now. There we go. I see some fist bumps all around. I'm so thankful you're here. We are so thankful that you're here. Whether you're here with us live on a Sunday, thank you for making space for us throughout this week. But also, maybe you're listening throughout the week, and we take that uh, honor and a privilege not lightly. We, we, we are so excited that we get to spend time with you, and we get to connect with you throughout the week. So today we're going to be continuing this series that we've been in called Relationship Goals, where we're going to walk through a different book of Ruth each and every week. Now here's the thing, whether you're single, whether you're in a relationship, out of a relationship, not quite sure if you are or not, wherever you are on the relationship spectrum, we have something for you throughout this series. And our teaching pastor, Alex Hamby, last week started off with Ruth 1 and talked to us about what the requirements of uh, are in a relationship. But today, we're going to continue into Ruth 2, and we're going to be talking about a relationship goal of living in a mission-driven relationship, a mission-driven relationship. So to begin this today, I'm going to need a little bit of help. You know I like some crowd and audience participation, so I'm going to need a little bit of help to kick this off, to learn about mission-driven relationship goal or living in a mission-driven relationship today. So here we go. Raise your hand if this describes you, okay? Uh, how many of you, regardless of the weather, rain, sleet, snow, no matter, no matter the weather, you would be willing to go out in your vehicle and drive in it. How many of you would do that? Okay, if that's you, awesome, awesome. Now, now on the other coin, how many folks, there's only certain types of weather they'll go in. They won't go out, like they won't bring their vehicle out in rain, sleet, snow, anything like that. Maybe ice on the road, you stay at home from that. Okay, all right, that's fair, that's fair. Okay, so of the people who raised their hand in the beginning, how many of you who would go out in any weather have a truck or an SUV? Something like that that you would have. Okay, keep your hand up if that's you. How many of you have a winch or a chain that you only use in bad weather or you have for bad weather? Right? There's, there's, I knew there would be at least one. There's fun. So everybody pay attention. Those people that raise their hand, those are the people that are going to help you in bad weather. Okay, that's important. That's important. So listen, listen, listen. This is where I'm going with this. This is where I'm going with this. It's so awesome to have those tools in that SUV or that truck, but have you ever seen somebody actually use it to help you in bad weather? It's such a great view of humanity when someone helps you by using that chain, by using that toe strap, by using that winch in bad weather because maybe you were afraid to go and venture out in the storm. And so when that, when that person has a mission to help someone, have you ever, they're excited. Have you ever had someone just be down and out that they're going to help you off the side of the road? Don't look at your spouse. That's wrong. Don't look at your spouse. Like, have you ever had anybody just come up, and it's usually just good salt-of-the-earth person. You know what I'm saying? They roll up, and they're ready to help you. Here's where I'm going with this, with our relationships. I believe that some of us are in relationships like that. Some of us are afraid to go out in the storm and grow through the relationships we're in, and we're operating out of fear in our relationships. Others of us are willing to go out in the storm, no matter what the season is, and understand that there's a mission and a purpose behind it, and we know that we can weather the storm because of who is with us, because he has the tools to help us out of the situation. And so today, I want us to have that mindset. I want us to know whether we're in a truck, an SUV, or a car, somebody's got a chain, somebody's got a toe strap, somebody's got a winch, and they're going to help you through whatever season of relationship you are in. 
Okay, so that's what we're going to be walking through today as we talk about Ruth 2, okay? So if you got your Bible, let's get to Ruth 2. It's the eighth book of the Old Testament. If you would like a Bible, we have them free for the asking in the garden. Our awesome Vine production team makes sure that you can follow along with us if you're watching online. But here's one thing I would also encourage you with. If you don't have a physical copy of the Bible, get you a digital copy of the Bible. What I love is we get to partner with a Bible app each and every week, and you can follow along with us. You can take notes with us, and you can connect with us, and I want to show you how you can do that today. If you want to download the Bible app from the App Store, and once you open that up, what you're going to want to do is uh, open that up. Make sure you click on the More tab. Once you click on the More tab, make sure you click on Events and your location services is on. And once you do that, you're going to see the Vine TV worship experience. You're going to see relationship goals, mission-driven. And you're going to see what we're going to walk through today in Ruth 2. You're going to see a place where you can take notes, but also a place where you can connect with us throughout the week. So if everybody's ready, strap on your seatbelt. We're going to jump straight into Ruth 2. And I'm going to go ahead and put the caveat out here in the beginning. I'll have you out of here by dinner time, okay? I promise. I promise. We're going to go through all of Ruth 2 today, all right? So we're going to go in. So Alex started us off in Ruth 1 last week, but just to paint a picture, in Ruth 2, what we're looking at in Ruth 1, Bethlehem has been through 10 years of famine. 10 years, at least a decade. We know it might have been a little bit longer, but a decade of famine. And all of a sudden, remember what happened is we had some really, some people were introduced last week where we, we heard about Naomi, this guy named Elimelech, and he took his family, his two daughters, or his two sons, excuse me, and they went to Moab, got married. Uh, and instead, what happened is Elimelech and his two sons passed away inside of that 10 years. Orpah, one of his daughters-in-laws, not Oprah, Orpah, uh, stayed behind in Moab. And Ruth clung to Naomi and is going with Naomi back to Bethlehem. So this is where we're going to pick up the story. The famine is over and the harvest is beginning. So Ruth 2 verse 1 says this. Now Naomi had a relative on her husband's side, a man of standing from the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. Now, if you know anything about me, I like to give you some meanings of names a little bit. Uh, Elimelech means God is my king, which is such a crazy thing at this time because in the time that this was written was the time of judges. There was no king over Israel. So it's really crazy that Elimelech's name is God is my king. But Boaz's name means fleetness or quickness. So he was quick. So if you see somebody quick, don't drop. Hey, they're Boaz. <laughs> you might get in trouble. I can't say too much of that in church world, right? If I start talking about Boaz and, and Yoaz, we're going to be in trouble. So like all of a sudden where we are all the way through, don't be dropping that on people. So uh, Boaz means quickness, but we're going to see his character today because if his name means quickness, he is somebody who wants something done like yesterday, right? Yet he stayed behind in Bethlehem for 10 years without a harvest. We're going to learn a lot about him today. Verse 2 goes on to say, And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. Naomi said to her, Go ahead, my daughter. So she went out and entered a field and began to glean behind the harvesters. Now, quick time out. When we look at this verse, how many folks remember growing up going to the parade where they threw stuff out? Like, I don't know if people throw stuff out. Like, normally it was a clown I was afraid of, but they had good candy, right? Like, somebody threw some free stuff out. And when we talk about this idea of gleaning, if you've never heard of it, that's kind of what it's like. Gleaning was when people picked up the leftovers. People would go out and they would pick up the leftover crop. What would happen is gleaning is what God set up in Levitical 
Levitical law. If you ever want to read about it, it's in Leviticus 19, verses 9 and 10. And it talks about uh, how they were supposed to set up the harvest. And this is why Boaz's name is important. His name means quick. When they had the harvest in Israel, they did it different than we do it. They didn't do it like we do where they have to make sure they pick up every little seedling and every little piece of every little crop. They actually went through the harvest very quickly and left up to 25% of their harvest behind so that the poor, the orphan, the widow, and the foreigner had something to eat and was provided for. So for the first time in over 10 years, there's a harvest. Boaz means quick. They go through a quick harvest. They leave up to 25% of their crop behind, and that's where Ruth is going in to glean to pick up the candy that the clowns left behind. So Boaz isn't a clown, but think of it that way. Some extra parade, has some candy. Ruth is doing that, picking that up behind. It goes on to say this. Mark this in your Bible, circle this, because we're going to come back to it in just a second. As it turned out, she was working a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. Verse 4 says, just then Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. Now look at Boaz's first words. The Lord be with you. How many of us, if we went to work tomorrow and our boss said, the Lord be with you, would think it was a good thing? Not many, right? That's the thing, but it actually is a good thing. Like most of the time when we look at that, if somebody brings God up in the conversation at work, you're like, all right, am I getting fired? Did they know that I did that to that person? Like, what in the world did they know? Like, what did they find out? But instead, Boaz is a man of character, and he's a worthy, righteous man, and he's letting his workers know the Lord be with you, and they answer back to him, the Lord bless you. Now, that's huge for his character because I told you to mark out here, it says, uh, as it turned out at the beginning of verse 4, it says this, just then. This is the fairy tale Disney part that we like in sitcoms. It's like they bump into each other in the coffee shop and the romance blossoms. It's the rom-com we all knew in the 90s. Like it was something. They ran into each other at the parade and ran from the clowns together, right? Like something like that. Like somewhere along the way, they just happened to bump into each other. So I'm going to give you a little seminary right quick because Alex said this last week and we talked about Ruth being about God's providence. So what's crazy is just then and and as it turned out as a sign of God's providence in this. So when you hear people talk about God's providence, it's when God works through the natural order of events to accomplish his will. We're about to see this with Ruth and Boaz throughout this story. He worked through the natural order of events. So in other words, uh, Ruth's husband passes away. Ruth's father-in-law passes away. Uh, she has nothing to eat, and Naomi goes back home, and she goes back to Bethlehem with Naomi, and the natural event of a harvest is taking place when that happens. The natural event is the man who oversees the field, who owns the field, Boaz is there at the time of the harvest and him and Ruth come together. That's God's providence working through the natural order of events. Now, when we hear about God's miracle, it's something different. It's when God disrupts the natural order of events to accomplish his will. So just a side note, we'll talk about that a little bit Thursday night, but just something that you can take as we learn about Ruth when we talk about God's providence, there's a difference in his providence and his miracle. So today, uh, where we are and what we're walking through, remember, Ruth is in the field, she's gleaning the field, and we're going and working around this idea of having a mission-driven relationship goal. And so if we want to have that today, the, no, the first thing that you have to have to have a mission-driven relationship that we just learned between verses 1 and 4 is we have to have a God-centered relationship. 
Our relationship has to be God-centered. Now, sometimes we think that that goes without saying, but not only is God at the center of our relationship, he has to be the head of our relationship. We have to be taking next steps toward him in everything that we do. And what I want you to see here is Ruth is showing us that whether she knows God or not in Ruth 1, I think it's verse 14, if I remember right, last week, uh, when she told Naomi, your God will be my God and I will go wherever you go. I will die where you die. And if your Lord has curses on you, he will curse me. And if he blesses you, he will bless me, right? Like we heard about that at the wedding vows last week. So if you want to have a relationship that's mission-driven, it has to be God-centered. We see that Ruth is taking a next step with Naomi in a God-centered relationship. Boaz is showing he's God-centered. I told you about his character. He's God-centered. Who in the world would stay behind in a famine for 10 years and hope that they could have crops and their family couldn't eat unless he was a man of faith? You see, he's trust God. I love what Boaz does here because he's a man of action and he leads well. God is at the center of his life and he's also at the center of his business. Boaz isn't up in the ivory tower telling everyone, everything's gonna be okay, God's gonna bless you. When we see him first enter this story, he's on the front line in the field with the harvesters saying to them right away, the Lord is gonna bless you, the Lord is gonna be with you. And that is why his workers could come back to him and say, the Lord bless you. And what I love about it as well is, is we can see how Boaz is working in a God-centered life, in a God-centered relationship with God, not with Ruth yet, by the way, a God-centered relationship, is how easy would it have been for Boaz at the harvest to store the entire harvest? Not trust the law, not trust God, not leave up to 25% behind, not leave anything behind for the poor because I just stepped out of a 10-year famine. I just stepped out of lack in my life. Why in the world would I not save something back for provision for myself? Why would I provide for anyone else? But he shows he has God at the center of his life because he trusts if God provided him that harvest, he's gonna provide again and he's gonna take care of him. So when we look at these two characters, we can see how they lived in a God-centered relationship. But you may be asking me right now, how in the world do I live in a God-centered relationship? How do I live with my spouse in a God-centered relationship? With my significant other, if you're not married yet, or with yourself, realistically, in a God-centered relationship? And I want to tell you something that I want you to know 100% that maybe... I just know somebody needs to hear this today, so I'm gonna share it with you this way. I want you to realize in your life, no one that walks this earth could ever give you identity, can ever give you purpose, and can ever truly accept you just the way you are. Now, I know this is hard, so before you start throwing something at me, this is why that can't be, because Jesus has already done it for you. And when you put that on the person for you, when you put that on the person that you are with and you expect them to be your savior, you expect them to give you an identity, you expect them to give you a purpose, you expect them to be the only thing that can accept you, you're destined to fail when God isn't at the center of it. Only in Christ can you find your true identity, your true purpose, and you can see that there is a love that you can experience like nothing else this world could ever offer. Yes, we are to love our spouse as Christ loves the church. Yes, but I want you to know today, no one who walks this earth can. So I want us to get that out in the open right away to understand that because if, if we don't, we will go after failed relationship, failed relationship, failed relationship, failed relationship, and we can't understand why, and it's because we're expecting someone else to be our savior. 
And so we have to have God at the center of our relationship. So we have to, if we want to do that, we have to realize that only Jesus can give us that. We have to take the steps of faith he calls us to take. That's what Ruth does. She takes little step by little step back to Bethlehem from the place of Moab that is a place of lack, that is not a place that's God's promise, and she steps into God's promise. As a matter of fact, she was outside of God's promise and took obedient steps inside to God's promise. How crazy awesome is that? Even in this, as she goes into the promised land. So wherever you are, you have to take the next steps of faith God's called you to be with God at the center of it so that you can be who he created you to be. Don't worry about everyone else being who they were created to be. You be who you were created to be first and point them to Jesus. And they're going to become who they were created to be. And all of a sudden, God is at the center and the head of your life. When, when, when you're doing that, it's not just two people. It's three people. It's four people. It's when you change the world and flip it upside down with the gospel. When you have people who are being exactly who they were created to be. So you have to have God at the center of your life. If you're married right now, I want to tell you this. I've shared this before. Anytime anybody gives me, asks me for advice or tells me anything, I want to say it to you this way because it's always stuck with me. The reason you're married and the reason we say let no man put asunder what God has brought together every time that you're married is this. The will that God wants to accomplish through you together, he couldn't do if you were separated. In other words, if God could make you to be all he created you to be single your entire life, there's no reason for you to be married. But what he wants to do between you and your spouse, husband and wife, with him at the center and the head of your relationship, what he wants to accomplish through you, you have to be together, united to do that. Otherwise, there's no need for you to be married. And so if you're in a relationship or you're in a marriage that God's not the center of or God's not the head of and you're trying to figure out why you're struggling, that might be the reason why is because you're not following God's will. You don't understand that he brought you together to accomplish his will. Otherwise, he doesn't need you to be together. I'm not telling you to go get divorced. I'm telling you maybe you need to talk to somebody about it today. Reach out to us at prayer at thevine.tv, 864-580-6698. We have married folks in this church that would love to talk with you about that. So let's try to get God leading your marriage, God at the center of your marriage, because that's the only way that it will be a relationship that's worth living. Otherwise, if you've been in those without God at the center, man, those that have been through it, Man, it's misery. You would say hell on earth because <laughs> it felt like it, didn't it? You didn't know who your identity was in. You didn't know what in the world it was. You said, I wish Jesus would come in and slap somebody across the face because I'm about to, right? Like you were right there in that moment. And that's not what Jesus died to give you. So make God be the center of your relationship. I told you, dinner time, we're gonna get there. Hang in here with me. I promise we're gonna get through this. Ruth 5, Ruth uh, excuse me, 2, verse 5. Ruth 2, verse 5. We're almost there. Look at Boaz right here. Boaz asked the overseer of the harvest, who does that young woman belong to? Now, how many folks in church grew up learning this about this? And I even, hey, we're reading a Bible plan together, and it pointed it out this way. And I'm going to tell you, reading this text, we're going to look at it at a different angle. Most people would say Ruth, uh, Boaz had eyes for Ruth at that moment in time. He was giving his, hey, girl, hey, Hey, what's up? How you doing? Like that was his like pickup line is trying to figure out who Ruth was in this moment. But I want to tell you something. I want to give you something that's different, a little different angle. You see, Boaz, we'll talk about his lineage a little bit more and we will on Thursday, but we will at the end today. See, Boaz's mother was Rahab. Now, if you grew up in church, you know who Rahab is. Rahab was actually a prostitute and ran a brothel in Jericho. 
Jericho was the first city the Israelites took when they went to the promised land, completely destroyed it. The only people that were spared were Rahab and her household. So Rahab marries this awesome, good, salt-of-the-earth man named Salmon. Can't beat that, right? So Salmon and Rahab have a son. His name is Boaz. So imagine this. It's not Boaz having eyes for Ruth to do something sexual with her, to be in a romantic relationship. As a matter of fact, he sees this. And imagine growing up, he hears about his mother being a foreigner in the promised land, married to an Israelite walking in the promised land and having to walk in steps of faith. And he sees this foreigner in his field and he sees his mother. His compassion is stirred for her because of how he was brought up. Not that he wanted a romantic relationship with her. And many of us may have learned that growing up. And I would tell you, this is where Jesus has rocked me in that. So when he says, who does that young woman belong to? He sees his mother. He sees the foreigner in the promised land. And so it goes on to say, the overseer replied, she is the Moabite who came from Moab with Naomi. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves behind the, far, the harvesters, excuse me, farmers, same thing really, but the harvesters. She came into the field and has remained here from morning until now, except for a short rest in the shelter. This is what I love about Ruth. Remember God at the center of her life. She's a Proverbs 31 woman here. She ain't afraid to work. She understands that even though God's welfare system was set up that she could glean, she understood that she had to take a next step to be a part of his provision. And so many times in our life, I think we can get stuck there, especially in our relationships. And this is how I know. God, would you just please come over that person? Because if you don't heal them, mm, I'm going to send them straight to you. I don't know what else to do, right? Like we have those prayers where we ask God to do something, but then God tells us to take a next step, and what do we do? We stay the same. We don't take it. What I love and see, and when I tell you Ruth has God at the center of her life, is she's taking a next step, even inside of God's provision. She's not, she's not afraid and be willing to work to take that next step. So when you pray and you ask God to do something, listen for what he calls you to do next. And don't get mad at him if he won't do it because you didn't take the next step. Because I'm telling you, if you're in a relationship that you want to see change in, let God change you first and see how the relationship changes. Because I'm living proof, I promise you, when he does that, It'll work out for his glory and for your good. I promise you. So when we do that, look at Ruth, the Proverbs, 34, the Proverbs 31 woman. She's standing there. She's gleaning in the field. So Boaz now has a conversation with Ruth in verse 8. So Boaz said to Ruth, my daughter, listen to me once again. Now, when folks told me that, that Boaz had a romantic relationship and was looking at Ruth to say, I want to have a romantic relationship with you, he calls her his daughter. Exactly, pin drop. So this isn't a romantic thing. He sees his mother in her. He says, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field. Don't go away from here. Stay here with the women and who work for me. Watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along after the women. I have told the men not to lay a hand on you. This is so scandalous, so scandalous. And whenever you are thirsty, go and get a drink from the water jars the men have filled. You have to understand the time how scandalous this is. Listen, foreigners were going to fill water jars for the men working the harvest at that day and time. But Boaz is telling Ruth, no, 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 my daughter, listen to me. The, the water jars that are filled for the men, they're filling it to serve you. Does that sound like somebody familiar that we know of in the New Testament? Does that sound like Jesus flipping the world upside down saying, hey, instead of you going to serve them, I'm coming to serve you in this moment. We're going to see that even more from Boaz. How crazy is that? Verse 10, 
says this, at this she bowed down with her face to the ground. She asked him, why have I found such favor in your eyes that you notice me, a foreigner? Remember his upbringing. Boaz replied, I have been told all about what you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, how you have left your father and your mother and your homeland and came to people you did not know before. Boaz is just remembering the stories his mother told him about the Israelites coming to Jericho and how she was a foreigner in the promised land, stepping into God's promise. He sees that more and more, and he says my favorite verse in Ruth 2, 100%, is right here, verse 12. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. Now, remember what Ruth said to Naomi in, in, in verse 14, where you go, I will go. Your God will be my God. If he curses you, he will curse me. If he blesses you, he will bless me. Boaz is speaking that to her, and he hadn't even heard that conversation. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. I want you to see that Boaz just prayed a blessing over Ruth. He just said, hey, may you be protected. May the Lord richly reward you. May you be taken care of in Israel. Remember his upbringing. Rahab, everyone in her house survived. The spies that came into Jericho, only those in her household survived. And all of a sudden we see this is what is overwhelming Boaz. And in this moment, we can see Boaz's character even more instead of just doing what the law required, which says, hey, I'm gonna leave about 25% of my crop to feed people. He's also saying, Ruth, not only are you gonna be fed, you're gonna have water to drink and people are gonna serve you. He extends grace. So when we look at that verse and, and, and verse 10 and we say she, she bowed down to him and she worshiping him? No, she is overcome in a posture of worship because of the grace lavishly poured out upon her. Folks, that's what the worship is all about. That's what worship experience is all about. A posture of receiving God's grace so much so it brings us to our knees. We can't help but come to our knees and lift up and say, what have I done to receive this great reward? telling you the gospel is all over this i love i love this book like the gospel is all over it verse 13 says may i continue to find favor in your eyes my lord she said you have put me at ease by speaking kindly to your servant though i do not have the standing of one of your servants doesn't that sound familiar in other words ruth is a foreigner she has no identity by birth she is nothing but a, a slave basically she's nothing Yet she has the standing of a servant, of a servant harvesting the field. I seem to remember someone in the New Testament saying, look up, the fields are white with harvest. Pray for laborers because they're few, even though the harvest is plenty. That is what Jesus has done for us. And with God at the center of our life, we can see that we have a standing through him of something we didn't earn. Ruth didn't do anything to earn that standing. She just received that blessing. So if you're trying to have a mission-driven relationship, I've, I've talked to you about God being the center of your relationship. Hang in here with me. The second thing you have to have, and I gotta duck down on this one, so I'm gonna be ready. Uh, the second thing that you have is obedient. You gotta be obedient if you want a mission-driven relationship. So before I get the emails or the lettuce or tomatoes tossed at me for this or the nasty grams, you're gonna say, I gotta be obedient to my spouse. Like before you start beating me up about it, I want you to know, ain't nobody got control over me. Like, don't give me that mess. 
this. I don't need that. What I'm talking about is we just saw this in Ruth and Boaz's story. Obedience is defined submission to another's will. Let's look at it another way. Obedience is defined this way. Putting someone else's interest above your own. Obedience is serving. If you want a mission-driven relationship, you got to be obedient to what you've been called to do, and you've got to be obedient and willing to put their, their needs above your needs. Ruth shows us that when she humbled herself in that moment and stayed in Boaz's field because she didn't go anywhere else. She only found provision in Boaz's field. And if you're married right now and you're in a relationship, if you'll work the field you're in inside your relationship and not worry about all the other fields around you, you'll be surprised how you'll be provided for. You'll be surprised how God works through that. Instead of worrying about everybody else's field and how much better their corn is over in that field, if you'll just harvest the weed in yours, you'll see something crazy awesome happen and see God do what only he can do. So if you have an obedient, mission-driven relationship, I'm telling you Jesus will move like never before. Ruth shows us that. She stays in Boaz's field and does what he tells her to do. Hey, you thirsty? Go get something to drink. Hey, pick up behind everyone else. Go behind the men in the harvest. Boaz humbles himself and serves Ruth here. We're going to see that here in the next few verses. But because he extends that grace to her to make sure not only are you going to be fed, but you're going to have something to drink. I just, sorry, something just keeps coming to my head. Like, I'm the bread of life. And I have living water. Does that not sound, sound like Jesus? Does that not sound familiar? But yet when we walk in obedience, we get to experience his provision, don't we? Yet so many times we want to go do our own thing, right? We think we can pull ourselves out of this mess instead of trusting him to pull us through. So you may be asking right now, how do I live out obedience in my relationship? No, it's not lording over your spouse. We are not called to lord it over our spouse. In any relationship we're in, we're not called to be lords. We're actually called to be servants together. So I want you to know one huge thing we're going to unpack next week in Ruth 3 is if you want to be obedient to your spouse, you want to serve your spouse, you got to know the difference between their needs and wants. You may want a lot of things, but it might not be what you need. That's why you got to stay in your field. Boaz understands the need that Ruth has in this moment is protection, safety, and provision. He understands that. And Ruth knows that's what she needs. Now, she may want, she may want a cheeseburger that she got in Moab, but she ain't going to get it in Israel. But she's going to be provided for if she stays obedient. And Boaz is trying to stay obedient when I look at him. And, I, and so for you and I, we have to understand the difference between a need and a want. We have to serve each other above, uh, serve each other and have our partner's interest, our spouse's interest above ourselves. This works in every relationship. When you serve someone, you're putting their needs above your needs. That's literally what service is all about. Otherwise, you go to a place and they have terrible customer service, right? And it's because they didn't put your needs above their own needs in that moment to, to you know, spit in your food. I'm just saying. But you know what it is. Whatever it is they do for when you're waiting in the drive-thru or you're in the hot and now sign when you go up the road and you're waiting 20 minutes, right? You're trying to figure out whose needs they're trying to serve. So if you want to see something crazy great happen in your marriage, serve your spouse, put their needs above yours. And this is what it should look like. It should actually be joyful. If you are being obedient to your spouse begrudgingly because I have to, that's not obedience. If I'm just going to take out the trash because they've been nagging me for a week to take out the trash, I'm just going to finally do it. Okay. 
And you just stomp off and do it. How does that work out in your marriage? Usually doesn't, right? It usually doesn't. So obedience in marriage should actually be a joy. As a matter of fact, it should be doing simple things that you know your spouse likes and not doing the annoying things that drive them crazy. Obedience actually looks like this. When you finally get to go out with your friends, that embarrassing story about your spouse that you know just drives them insane, and so you tell it to everybody, you refrain from doing it. You celebrate that in private. You laugh about it in private. You don't put each other on blast everywhere you go outside. Or, or, or maybe it's like this. Maybe you've been waiting to go on that golf trip forever. You've been waiting a year to finally go play golf and hit that little ball in that itty-bitty hole, that ball that I can throw farther than I can hit it. But anyway, you finally have time to do that, but your wife's been at home with the kids, and she just needs a break, and you think golf's more important than her having a break. See, that's serving her to say, you know what, baby? I'm going to take care of the kids. You go have a day. Watch what that does for your relationship. It'll set it on fire in a good way, not in a bad way. The problem is when we don't want to be obedient, we end up fighting with each other and we're not on the same page. And if you're in a relationship that sticks together, whenever you get mad and you finally know how to push all the right buttons with each other and you finally pushed all the right buttons, what ends up happening is there's just like this swath of destruction in front of you, right? Who has to clean it up? It's you and your spouse, right? Otherwise, you go on to the next relationship and then you have another swath of destruction and you expect someone else to clean it up. And that's not what God intended. If he's the center of your relationship and at the head and you're walking obediently following him, excuse me, then all of a sudden you can see in those moments that you have disagreements because you will, you're human. Does the toilet paper go over or under? We've discussed this like a waterfall. Like whenever you go through that, whatever that looks like, when you have those disagreements and blowouts, you're able to work through them. Okay? So obedient. We got to be God-centered. We got to be obedient. We got about eight hours left, y'all. We're good. We're good. Verse 14. Look how Boaz serves Ruth. At mealtime, Boaz said to her, come over here. Have some bread and dip it in the wine vinegar. When she sat down with the harvesters, he offered her some roasted grain. She ate all she wanted and had some left over. This is huge right here. We're going to talk about this Thursday night at Greenhouse. But doesn't this just look like communion? The bread and the wine? Ruth has a seat at Boaz's table, one she didn't earn. And he's serving her not out of romantic interest, he's serving her out of compassion. Compassion. And he serves her the bread and the wine vinegar, so much so she's filled to overflow and gets the takeout box. How crazy awesome is that? How many of us love takeout, right? We like to have them takeout boxes, right? It works out. You pay enough for dinner, you might as well have it for lunch the next day, right? Like, that's how we roll all the way through. So all the way through, we see that Boaz takes the moment to serve her. It's not romantic, but this is why it's so important. Ruth has been on a diet of like ramen noodles. You ever been on that diet? Hey, holla at your boy, bland diet. I understand. Man, if I ate a cheeseburger right now, y'all would have to call and do CPR on me right now. Like, it would not be a good thing. But like, have you ever just been on this bland diet and all of a sudden you could break it oh and you get some good food see that's what the roasted grain was it was the best and the wine vinegar was 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 the the first of it that they had it was it was fermenting it was it was the good wine it was ready to go and she's able to have wine and roasted grain and is filled so much so she's filled to overflow 
We're gonna see what she does with that box here in a second, but that's because she was operating with God at the center of her life. She was taking obedient steps in him. So let's go on to see. As she got up to glean, so she done got her belly full, now she's gotta go work it out. You know what I mean? She's gotta earn that cake she just ate, right? <laughs> like she's gotta go earn it. So now she goes out to glean and Boaz gave orders to his men. Let her gather among the sheaves and don't reprimand her. Even pull out some stalks for her. In other words, what Boaz is saying is, hey, I want you to keep her in this field so that she is protected. So they would go along, instead of just having a little bit of the heads, they would take the whole stalk and let it fall down. And once it hit the ground, that's when the poor, the foreigner, the orphan, and the widow could pick it up. They would just take the whole stalk and it would fall to the ground and she could pick it right up. And so he's saying, leave even more than normal behind for her and leave it even in the bundles for her to pick up and don't rebuke her. So Ruth gleaned the field till evening. She threshed the barley she had gathered, and it amounted to about an ephah. Now, if you look in your footnotes, an ephah in the NIV says it's about 30 pounds. If you read the NKJV, it says it's about six and a half gallons. So hear me out here. I know that that's more than 30 pounds. A gallon of water is about eight pounds. I, I shouldn't know these things, but I do. It's about eight pounds. So six and a half gallons of grain, like six and a half gallons of water is about, what, 50 pounds, roughly? I think Ruth could have handled herself in that field, y'all. I'm not going to lie to you. She's got 50 pounds of food, anywhere from 30 to 50 pounds of grain, a grain that she throws up on her back, and she carries it all the way back to town to her mother-in-law, who saw how much she gathered. And then she brought it out and gave her the leftovers she had eaten from when she just ate with Boaz. So she hauls 50 pounds of food plus that takeout box. So that means, I mean, I'm sure she had a pretty big takeout box. I don't know how she worked it out, but she worked it out where she could carry all of that to town. How crazy awesome is that? Roost out, y'all. I wouldn't mess with her. Her mother-in-law asked her, where did you glean today? Where did you work? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. Then Ruth told her mother-in-law about the one whose place she had been working. The name of the man I worked with today is Boaz, she said. Look at Naomi's faith being restored here. In chapter one, remember she said, call me Mara or Mara, which means bitter, bitter, but her name meant pleasant. So look at her faith being restored in verse 20. The Lord bless him, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law. He has stopped, not stopped showing his kindness to the living and to the dead. Look at her faith completely 180. And why? Because she's inside of God's promise, obediently where she needs to be, Naomi is, in this moment of time. She added, this man is our close relative. He is one of our guardian redeemers, our kinsman redeemers. Now, this is one of my favorite parts of Ruth, and we'll be unpacking this more and more the next two weeks as we continue this series. But a kinsman redeemer or a guardian redeemer in Levitical law, I know we don't like that book called Leviticus, but you gotta read it sometime. Leviticus 25 talks about what a kinsman redeemer is. And what this means is someone in the family, one person in the family, could redeem a person or a piece of property in order that it would not be left destitute and to fend for itself. We've talked about this before as a slave. One person could redeem another person and set them free from destitution, set them free from being in shackles the rest of their lives. They could redeem them. So a guardian redeemer, a kinsman redeemer is what Boaz is. See, there's somebody else in the New Testament. I'm telling you, it's all over this. Somebody else in the New Testament that is our redeemer that paid a price to set us free. Y'all, this ain't the gospel. 
If this ain't a picture of Jesus, I don't know what is. Like, seriously, this is what I love about Ruth, too. So if you're trying to have a mission-driven relationship, I'm going to tell you the answer is Jesus all the way. But we're going to get through this today. you got to be God-centered. you got to be obedient. Number three, you got to be accountable. you got to be accountable. This all makes sense, hopefully, at some point. I know the Spirit's moving. So you got to be God-centered. you got to be obedient. you got to be accountable. And here's why. Ruth stays in the field she's assigned, so much so she's accountable. How easy would it have been for Ruth to peel back those takeovers, those left out, those, those, the, the things she took back home, those leftovers, that takeout she had, and keep it for her lunch the next day. But instead she serves it to Naomi. She gives Naomi some of the best wine and some of the best grain who's been eating ramen noodles with her and says, hey, I want to bless you because I've been blessed. She's accountable. She's open. She's transparent. You want to have a great relationship? Be open and transparent. Be able to speak to each other about what you're walking through. Boaz shows it once again, and he provides for Ruth, he protects Ruth, and he serves Ruth as long as she stays in his field. My friends, that's what God calls us to do. If we stay in the field that we were planted in and we bloom where we're planted, that's what God calls us to do. If we'll do that, we'll see his provision, his protection, and we'll see him serving us more than we could ever serve him. So you may be asking right now, how in the world can I be accountable in my relationships? Really quickly, I'll walk through it. You gotta be spiritually healthy in your relationships. An accountable relationship is when your spouse or when your significant other or whoever you're dating or even if it's just a work relationship where somebody can come to you and say, hey, what have you been reading in your Bible? Hey, how can I pray for you? But more importantly, how can we pray together? You gotta be able to be accountable. You gotta be able to be accountable spiritually with each other. You gotta be accountable emotionally and sexually, especially in the marriage relationship. We'll walk through this a little bit next week, but you gotta be emotionally stable inside of a relationship. It's the most sensitive thing you'll talk about to anyone is that. Emotional stability and sexual stability. Those two things, that, that's what starts, that's when the picks up. Like everybody's got the, you know, they got that face, that's crazy. But this is so important because the thing is in your relationships, how you navigate through those moral struggles and temptations will chart the course of your entire marriage. What I mean by that is if you're in a relationship and you're married when accountability comes up is if he comes to you and says, hey, we can't go to that beach anymore because it makes my eyes wander. And I would never want to do that to you, but because it makes my eyes wander, could we not go to that destination anymore? Could we not go to that beach? Do you get mad at him because it's your favorite beach and tell him how bad he is about it and how terrible he is as a person? Or do you say, you know what? There are hundreds of beaches here in the United States that we could go to. Let's pick one we can go to together. As a matter of fact, as a man, how we can learn from this is if she says that that one spa, that one store, that one haven she has is her sacred place, and she enjoys that more than anything, and she would just like to spend time in it, do we get mad at her and tell her how terrible of a person she is, how it's always about her, how she always needs her space, or do we say, hey, how can I work with you to make you be able to get in that space more often? You see, an accountable relationship can do that. An accountable relationship can do that. Two more things here in this one. We have, to be on, we have to be accountable with our schedule and our money. With our schedule and our money. Our schedules, we have to understand that for our plates, everyone has a certain size plate that you're born with that you can handle to stay stable mentally. And you have to understand when you put something on your plate, you gotta take something off your plate. So when you look at your schedule, it is okay to say we don't have time for that right now. I'm giving you that blessing. One thing about Tyler West that a lot of people don't like, and I'm okay with it, I've grown to be okay with it, is it's like, man, it's always no first with you, and then you finally get to the yes. 
But the reason is I always want to have my best yes. And I'm okay with saying no if it's not going to get us to our best place because I realize that in order for me to do some things, I have to say no to other things. And so for each and every one of you, I'm giving you the freedom today. If you've got kids, it's okay that you can't do 15 million other things. Your kids are your ministry. Say no. We don't have time for that right now. We have a baby. That's okay. Understand that's okay. And with your money, the biggest fight you'll have inside of your marriage will be about your money more than likely. More than likely. And if you need help with that, I want to tell you today, be on the same page. We would love to get you to financial peace. We have folks who would teach it to you. I would love to teach it to you and walk with you through it. If you need help with that today, be accountable with your finances today. Because I'm telling you, there's nothing like coming home with shopping bags that somebody didn't know about. If you know, you know. I'm just saying. If you know, you know. I do it to myself. I'm like, did I buy this? I don't know what I said. You'll get it later. So anyway, be accountable. We're almost done with Ruth. We've got three more verses to walk through. Ruth chapter 2, verse 21. Then Ruth the Moabite said, he even said to me, circle, highlight, do whatever you got to do to this word. Stay with my workers until they finished harvesting all of my grain. Stay, stay. That's the same thing that Ruth said in Ruth 1, verse 14. That word means to cleave. It, the, the Hebrew word is dawback. I'm going to say it right because this is actually how you pronounce it. Dollback. Tell me Jesus didn't know that Southeast was going to be alive when this book was written. Dollback. It's spelled D-A-B-A-Q. It means to cleave. It's the same thing we talk about with husbands and wife in Genesis 2. Cleave. A husband and his wife is supposed to cleave and cling to each other and leave their family and cleave. Come together. They're supposed to be together. So Boaz is telling Ruth, if you'll stay in my field, you'll be provided for. How crazy is that? Verse 22 and 23 go on to say, Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it will be good for you, my daughter, to go with the women and work for him because in someone else's field you might be harmed. So Ruth stayed close to the women of Boaz to glean until the barley and wheat harvest were finished. Now before we read this last line, that's about 60 days. We'll talk about Thursday night, the importance of the two harvests. However, I want to say it this way. This is where the plot twist is. This is where like friends is really coming back. You're welcome. Uh, Friends is really coming back. Like all of a sudden Chandler and Monica are about to get together and all of a sudden like there's this wreck and the screen goes black and it says to be continued dot, dot, dot. That's how Ruth 2 ends because you think, oh, this is the love story. This is Cinderella and Prince Charming or, or Snow White and Prince Charming. This is, this is, this is Ariel. She, I mean, she's about to get her voice and go start walking. She's already seen the terrible Ursula, right? Like all of a sudden this is about to start happening, but instead it ends with, she lived with her mother-in-law. Doesn't say happily ever after, but she goes and lives with her mother-in-law. So the last thing that you have to have for a mission-driven relationship is you have a mission-driven relationship lives in unity. So it's God-centered, it's obedient, it's accountable, and it lives in unity. Look, Ruth is living in unity with Naomi. She said she would cling to her. Until, until, until she's not supposed to anymore. Just like children are supposed to be with you until God calls them to not be with you anymore and be with a spouse or to be on their own. Boaz is staying true to his word, being what God created him to be as the kinsman redeemer. We're gonna see that play out in Ruth 3, but also in how he harvests his field, how he leads his worker, how he serves Ruth. He lives in unity with his people because how easy would it have been to be like, excuse me, his relative Elimelech and go to the place of Moab and provide for myself. 
because I have to go where the job gives me the money instead of trusting this is where God told me to do that. So if you want to live in unity in your relationship, I'm not talking about sex here. I just want to say this. If you want to live in unity in your relationship, I want you to not just share an address, but you've got to answer two questions here, okay? Two questions. What do you both love and what do you both hate? What do you both love and what do you both hate if you want to live in unity? Because one of the greatest tragedies in marriage is when two people are together but not united, okay? So what do you love and what do you hate? Maybe you love kids but you can't have them, and you hate kids don't have homes to grow up in. Fostering might be your next step. Maybe, maybe you love being financially free and you hate people are saddled with debt and they don't know how to get out of it. Have a financial peace university at your, at your house. We'll help you get through that. We'll help you learn how to teach that. Maybe you love people being married and you hate people being divorced. Become a marriage mentor. Help people walk through those seasons. Help people see what God's taught you in those moments. Maybe you love cooking and you hate that people eat alone. Host a small group at your house and have a dinner. Invite your friends, neighbors. Go to the highways, the byways, the hollers and the hills, if you will. Invite people who are alone to your house and see what God does with that. Because I'm telling you, if you understand what you both love and what you both hate, you'll be able to live in unity. And all of a sudden, you've got a mission you're willing to drive towards. And all of a sudden, it makes things different. Because mission-driven relationships always have a G-O-A-L goal. They always have a goal. They always have to be God-centered. They always have to be obedient. They always have to be accountable to each other. And they always, always have to live in unity. So really quick, if you want to do that, have a plan and write it down. What's God's mission for your marriage? If you've got kids, you already know it right now. <laughs> it's to steward them to be all that he created them to be while you're becoming all he created you to be. What is God's goal? What is God's mission for your marriage? Write it down. Meet up regularly about it. Talk about it. Share it. Some of the best things and some of the best stories about being debt-free are when people got their kids involved and said, this is how we want to live debt-free because we don't want you to be straddled by debt. We don't want you to be saddled by debt. We want to show you how to live this way. It makes a difference. Makes a huge difference for us. So you got to have a goal. So meet regularly. Maybe you meet once a week. Maybe you meet once a month with it. Maybe you meet once a quarter about it. But the thing that you want to know if you really want to have a goal in your life, and this is Tyler preaching to himself right here, something that Jesus has been teaching me more than anything, is if you really want to have a mission-driven relationship and a mission-driven life with a goal, you got to work on your life, not just in your life. you got to actually work on your life, not just in your life. Boaz was working in the field, but he also understood what he needed to do to work on Boaz. Ruth understood that she was in the field, but she needed to understand what it was like to work on Ruth. And what I would tell you, what Jesus has been teaching me more and more, because I'm a hard worker, I'm willing to work and do anything, if you know anything about me. As long as the gospel spread to the ends of the earth, I'll do anything. But what Jesus has been reminding me of is this. So many times we'll waste our life working in our life and being overwhelmed by everything that we won't actually live it because we never worked on it. And we'll realize that 30 years have passed by and we're the same as we was 30 years ago. Were, excuse me, bad English. But we were the same as we were 20, 30 years ago. And that's not why Jesus died. That's not why he set you free. And so today I want you to know that there's no one on this earth that can give you an identity a purpose and can accept you the way that you really are except Jesus Christ because he's already done it 
And as we get ready to, to close up here in a minute, I want to tell you how. You see, Boaz's lineage is a little crazy. I told you about his mom. His mom was a prostitute. His mom was a prostitute, so he's already got that cool story to share with the kids. But Boaz's lineage actually started out in his great, count this with me, five times, okay? Great, 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 great grandfather's name was Judah. Now, let me tell you about Judah's relationship. Judah started the tribe of Judah, okay? And he started the tribe of Judah with his daughter-in-law, and her name was Tamar. So he slept with his daughter-in-law, and they had a son, and they called him Perez. And Perez was a mighty warrior, which is why the tribe of Judah was always the first one out when Israel went to battle. They were the ones that were out front. They were the warriors, but Judah means praise. So that's why when we praise, we actually are going out to the battle on the front line like Judah was. So Boaz's relationship, it comes all the way down to him, and his mother's a prostitute, Mary Salmon, and he is born. Ruth's, Ruth's past is no different. As a matter of fact, Ruth comes from a country called Moab. Now, Moab came about, you can read about Moab in Genesis 19, if I remember correctly. You can read about Boaz with Judah and Tamar in Genesis 38. But Genesis 19 is where we learn about this country called Moab. And in Moab, uh, it started because Abraham's nephew, Lot, when Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed, we've all probably heard of Sodom and Gomorrah being destroyed, he slept with his oldest daughter, and they had a son and called him Moab. So incest. So Boaz comes from, from someone sleeping with their daughter-in-law, and Ruth's lineage comes from someone who slept with their daughter, and it leads to this country named Moab, the place that the Israelites hate, the people that the Israelites hate, and they come into this space. And so Ruth and Boaz are about to have their paths collide in this story, and this is why I'm sharing this with you today. You're never too far gone for Jesus to redeem you. Because that same lineage, when Ruth and Boaz come together, they have a son, his name is Obed. Obed has a son, his name is Jesse. And he has a son, which is a son many of us know, his name's King David. And that leads all the way down to Jesus. And so today, no matter where you are, maybe you have nothing but broken and failed relationships in your past, you are not too far gone to be redeemed. And I just want you to know today that Jesus has paid a price to redeem you. And maybe today your relationships are so broken because Jesus has never been the center of your life. He has never been the head of your life. You've never had Jesus in your life. The relationship that's the most broken is the relationship with the Savior because Jesus has already came to set you free. Ephesians 1 verse 5 through 7 reminds us of that. It says, he predestined for us to adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace which he has freely given to us and the one he loves and him we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace in other words what this is saying is Jesus came to redeem you and me we were all born in Moab in a foreign place outside of God's promise. But God loved us enough that he made a way for us to live inside of his promise, inside of his field, to be provided for, to be protected, to be served. But we were out, outside of his will. We were dead, but he made a way that we could have life. And Jesus came to redeem us so that we could live inside of God's promise. And so today, maybe you've never given your life to Jesus. And I want to tell you today, you can't earn it. You can't work your way toward it. We're about to say a prayer. It's not the words of this prayer that's going to do anything about it. You have to have faith to receive the free gift of salvation. And so here in just a moment, we're about to pray. We're going to pray out loud as a family because we pray together here as a family. And I'm going to ask everyone to repeat after me. And once again, it's going to be the faith in this prayer. 
not the words in this prayer that will help you be redeemed and help you be saved. So everyone, please repeat after me. Dear Jesus, I believe I'm a sinner separated from you. I believe you came, lived the perfect life I couldn't live, <clears throat> died the death I deserve on the cross, but loved me enough not to stay dead, but rose again so that I may have life. Come take over my life. Teach me to follow you step by step the rest of my life the best way I know how. And with every head bowed and every eye closed, if you can say for the first time you've received the free gift of salvation, I'm gonna count to three and I'm gonna ask you to raise your hand. One, two, three. If that's you and you can say that you are truly redeemed for the first time, it's the first time that you've given your life to Jesus, that you've received this grace that he's given. If you're online, you're gonna see a hand that goes up. Click on that or you're listening throughout the week or you're on Facebook, comment or, or reach out to us at prayer at divine.tv or 864-580-6698 because I want you to know today there are people that wanna celebrate with you because you can't truly live a mission-driven life or have a mission-driven relationship if Jesus isn't in it. And so today, if that's you, we wanna celebrate with you. For the rest of us, I wanna pray over this next song and I'm just gonna ask that we be reminded as Ruth was of the lavish grace of the Father, the Father's love that he has put upon us and that we would just soak up his love in this moment and that we wouldn't be afraid of, of worshiping, that we would just sit in his presence and we would be in awe in his presence of his grace and mercy that he has given us because without him, we have no life. So dear Jesus, I pray right now in this moment as we sing about the Father's love, as we sing and celebrate you adopting us to sonship, you setting us free, you redeeming us, that we would just encounter you and that we would see you and we would be reminded of your grace. We would be reminded that there's never a moment in our life that we are too far gone for you to redeem us that you came, you met us right where we are, you accepted us. And when we received your free gift of salvation, when we accepted by faith, you are who you say you are. You gave us an identity, you gave us a purpose, you gave us a mission. And so today I pray that we would continue to be all you created us to be and that we would see you in a fresh new way. We love you, Lord, it's your name we pray, amen. Go stand and sing with us. Which 
Let's uh, lock it up and pray like we always do, and uh, I'm going to pray over this week, and then we're going to come back here next week and have an awesome week. So dear Jesus, thank you for this time. Thank you that you have paid our ransom. Thank you that you are our redemption, that because of you, we're not a foreigner, we're, we're not outside, we're, we're not orphaned, we're not widowed, we're not poor and destitute. Instead, with you, we have all that we need because you have given us a family. How great it is to know that with you, we never walk alone. So thank you, Jesus, that we get to have that through you. Thank you for this week. Thank you for this day. Thank you for this family, Jesus. I pray that we would go out this week and be all that you created us to be, that we would live on mission, that our relationships would be on mission. And Jesus, above all else, that we would have you at the center and head of our life. We love you, Lord. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Be sure to join us next week as we continue Ruth 3 and talk about having a Christ-centered relationship. You're going to want to be here because we're going to talk about what women need and what men need. So pray about it. Come join us next Sunday.